In the 1660s, one English village made the ultimate sacrifice when the plague began infecting their community. How did they respond to the sudden deaths? How did leadership manage the chaos? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History, where all the best stories are in the footnotes. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and I am interested today in exploring panics of the past, specifically how plagues were handled in a time before the medical science fully understood transmission and treatments. When all you had were your social ties, how did you break those ties to protect each other? This brings us to the little English town of Eam and its response to the outbreak of plague in the 1660s. Now, people have talked to me about E-M, pronouncing it E-M, but also I-M. Recently, I read an interesting article that insisted it should be pronounced E-M. But those who have been there tend to call it E-M, so that's what I am using. And let's talk about E-M. It existed unbroken from the Roman era until today, a surprising success normally reserved for larger cities who were not so easily wiped out during a temporary crisis such as a flood or war. E.M. is listed in the Doomsday Book, which is a fascinating collection of the details of England following the arrival of William the Conqueror. William wished to survey his new land and required all localities to submit a summary of their villages, the people, and the valuables that might be taxed under this new government. It's a great resource for historians, and E.M. was a part of it. By the middle of the 17th century, it was a small village of probably 800 people, if we look at the baptismal records of the church. Eam is a small town still today in Derbyshire, near the Nottingham Forest of Robin Hood fame in the center of England. This area is nestled between larger cities today, Leicester in the south, Liverpool to the northwest, and Leeds to the northeast. But in the 1660s, those cities did not yet exist as major centers of industry. Before the Industrial Revolution, town life had a different scope to it and the biggest draw of all was the social connection amidst the beauty of the countryside. This story is about personal sacrifice and the social ties that bind. This story is about the neighboring villages lending a hand. This story tells us a lot about humanity beyond our technology and our medical knowledge. The focal point of our story is the year between 1665 and 1666. The 1660s were a challenging period for England as a whole. The decade began with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Prior to the return of Charles II as king, the man whose social exploits earned him the nickname of the Merry King, England temporarily lost its monarchy. Going back 20 years to frame the situation, we find the Civil War of the 1640s. This conflict between Parliament and the Crown led to the capture and beheading of King Charles I, for complex reasons I will not rehearse here. It was followed by more than a decade of rule by a protectorate, mostly Oliver Cromwell. But after Cromwell died and his son proved to be lackluster as a leader, it fell to Charles II to return to England and seek a second chance at a kinder monarchy. And so the 1660s began with an uneasy compromise, a merry king, 
hoping to win over his subjects with policies designed to strengthen the social services of the Church of England. Soon after Charles II took over the throne, the decade got off to a rough start. In 1661, a rebel group called the Fifth Monarchists tried to seize control of London and force the newly returned king off the throne. They were defeated by a local regimen, but armed battle did take place, causing fear of a second civil war breaking out. Soon afterward, Oliver Cromwell's body was dug up and posthumously hanged for treason, which, in light of executing the current king's father, okay, fair game, but that is some dramatic politicking. During this decade, the slave trade began in earnest with the founding of the Royal African Company. Also, in 1663, a severe frost hit most of England, creating a spike in famine and weakening the families, industries, and immune systems of the English people throughout the kingdom. In order to prevent massive death, the Parliament of England and the Church of England came together in order to call for controlled fasting as a way to preserve food and pray to God for relief. By the middle of the decade, England was in very poor shape. The strong frost had reduced food supplies, and in 1665, the Second Anglo-Dutch War began. By April of 1665, the first plague victims were reported in London. Charles II and his royal court fled London, alongside many others. Then, a great fire broke out in Newport, Shropshire, nearly completely leveling the city. This crisis was a precursor to the most devastating event to come, the Great Fire of London in 1666, which nearly destroyed the whole of the capital over four days in September. Most of that city would have to be rebuilt, and the rest of the decade was a nationwide attempt to get the kingdom back in shape. And so it is against this backdrop of crisis, fear, and bad luck that the small town of Eam viewed the world. In the middle of the troublesome decade, a man in Eam received a parcel of cloth sent from London where the plague was in full force. Records show that by the end of 1665, around the time when this parcel arrived in Eam, 75,000 Londoners had perished by plague. A tailor's assistant in Eam reportedly unwrapped the cloth and set it near a fire to dry. And the story goes that this awoke the fleas hidden within the cloth. They jumped away from the fire and sought a meal. The tailor's assistant was soon the first victim of plague in Eam the first of many. Within days, others fell ill. In the autumn of 1665, 42 villagers fell ill enough to be recorded as plague deaths. Without knowing the source of the illness, they turned to isolation, to God, to anything that might save them. By the spring, many villagers began making plans to flee the town entirely. The local vicar was concerned that doing so might somehow not leave the plague behind, but would carry it with them, with the villagers running away, not knowing precisely what caused plague. That priest, William Montpeson, had arrived in Eam only two years prior, in 1664. He was still relatively new. He did not have those deep ties within the village, but he was a man of God and that counted for a lot, even in a decade when the Puritans and the Anglicans engaged in uneasy conflict. 
Cromwell had been a Puritan, and during his protectorate, he passed many laws embracing the Puritan view of worship. He had even banned Christmas in the 1640s. The return of King Charles and the return of his Church of England had created small breaks of religious folks around England. In fact, one of these breaks had occurred in Eam. The newer priest, Montpeson, was too new to take leadership of the village, but he could reach out to the person who had his job before 1664, the Puritan Thomas Stanley. Stanley had a long history within the town. National events may have cost him his job, and Montpeson was his replacement, but the plague was a crisis. The two created an alliance in order to persuade the villagers that the right thing to do was both simple and impossible to imagine. Just stay home. They created a plan together that was remarkably like the modern concept of social and physical distancing. The two men worked together to set up a plan to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the village for a full summer. The plague had been in the village since the previous fall, and the year of 1666 saw record deaths in London, followed by the Great Fire of September. What a time to decide to sit tight without any internet, streaming, phones, television, radio, or even news from the outside world. But after a lull in the deaths came a spike and a resurgence, at which point these two men of God were able to persuade the villagers that this was the right thing to do. They created a well-organized plan to educate the people and the moral need to stay home. They communicated the critical importance of isolation. And so, in June of 1666, about nine months after the first Taylor's assistant had died of plague, an announcement went out. No one would be allowed out. No one would be allowed in. They were to agree to stay put, and the two men promised to minister to their every medical and spiritual needs if the villagers just agreed to do this moral and difficult thing. Essentially, they asked the villagers to agree to a possible death in order to save the lives of those outside the village where plague had not spread. The honor of doing so might be eternal salvation. Now alone, William Montpeson would not have been successful. Diary entries survive from his wife, Catherine, stating this outright. He was just too new to the village and had not had time to build up the trust necessary for such a big ask. But someone else had been there long enough. Someone else had the trust of the village, and that someone was Thomas Stanley. By partnering together, they were persuasive. Catherine recorded how difficult the resentment was to William Montpeson's fairly new arrival and the hope the villagers had once Stanley had partnered with him. Catherine Montpeson, by the way, would not survive the isolation. She died of plague on the 23rd of August, 1666, more than a month before the isolation was lifted. The quarantine eventually lasted approximately four months. During this time, villagers agreed to stay mostly in their homes or at least going safely about their essential work, tending livestock and the like. Families had to remain far apart from each other and avoid leaving their homes. If someone fell ill or even died, the household was responsible for caring for the sick and ultimately burying their own dead. Church services continued, but only outside in a natural clearing. 
the village surrounded itself with a cordon over which no one was allowed to cross, even at the most gruesome times in August. In that month, daily, between five and six people perished of the disease. One devastatingly poor woman buried six of her children and her husband in about a week's time as the disease raced through her family. But the village stood strong. They were supported by their healthier neighbors who had not received parcels from London and had not been infected with plague. One small village nearby, named Stony Middleton, placed parcels of food and other supplies in a wide field near the village of EM so that one other villager could come safely out and collect those much-needed supplies. The support of these neighbors meant the difference between life or death by starvation, let alone plague. Collectively, they supported each other through the isolation and the distance inside the village by focusing on their heavenly reward. By saving the lives of outsiders, they were able to imagine a heaven where their dead family members would greet them alongside angels and Jesus Christ, rewarding their sacrifice with the accolades and honor of true Christians. This idea bound them together to stand strong even as those around them fell sick and died. And then, eventually, the rate of illness began to slow. The plague ran its course. By September 1666, the town was able to open up again, cautiously at first, but soon things returned to normal. The village could not have been larger than a thousand people, and some placed the pre-plague population at even half that, 500. Baptismal records from the previous decade suggest a population of about 800, but it's hard really to know how many baptized also survived to 1666. We have the graves to know that no matter its population before quarantine, the post-plague population was 260 people fewer. The graves around town and at the top of the hill include the deaths of 200 individuals from the summer of 1666. Today you can visit the graves and view markers honoring the sacrifice made by those who stayed home to prevent the spread of plague to other villages, towns, or larger cities. This is how we know Elizabeth Hancock lost six of her children and her husband. It's also how we know the priest Montpesson lost his wife Catherine to the disease in August. The grave sites are an important addition to our historical record in showing whose sacrifice became the last one they could make. Historians and medical experts agree, without the personal responsibility and sacrifice of these villagers, many more people would have died, and the initial thought of fleeing to Manchester or similar cities could have contributed to the deaths of literally thousands more people. This story is striking for a few reasons, the most obvious being the way the world handles pandemics today, even with all our technology and medical knowledge, has allowed us to risk so much and achieve so much hundreds of years after the little town of EM did their part to restrict the spread of plague. But beyond current global events, this story speaks to coming together, of unity in the face of uncertainty and sacrifice when no one knew what might happen. These are the stories that are so compelling in studying other moments in history, from World War II to struggles of post-colonial independence and survivors of slavery. Coming together is something humans do. 
Now, I do not think I could do a whole episode on the Black Death without sharing a few notes about medical history. The disease known as the Plague or Black Death comes in three forms, bubonic, septicemic, and pneumonic. So it isn't always right to call the Black Death the bubonic plague. The pustules were common, sure, but septicemia and pneumonia, without pustules, were also possible forms of illness that could lead to death. It is still possible to get plague today from the various wild animals found around the world. It is now so much more treatable, and victims can survive once they receive that treatment, but it is not the vestige of the Fargone history that we might believe. And so I really hope you've enjoyed today's episode on the sacrifices of a small village hundreds of years in the past. I have been your host, Leslie Skousen, and I hope it will remind you of the things we have in common across towns today and in villages from throughout history. Interested in owning some footnoting history merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>